Hey, welcome to another episode of the Who Dat Jedi podcast. Um, as always, I am Aaron, and with me is Dave and Alfredo. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Now I need to start like introducing ourselves instead of me just saying, "Hey, it's you guys." You know, so yeah, we'll we'll start that sometime. Uh, so we're gonna have kind of an easy episode today because uh, Dave just got back from a family vacation. Um, which was, you know, maybe a little bit of like, you know, are we there yet? No, are we there yet? No, are we there yet? No. <laughs> um, did I did I get close to the mark there, Dave? You did indeed, yes. You know, but I think about this, but imagine, I, man, I'm sorry. Kids these days, they don't know how good they got it because, I mean, when we went on trips like, you know, that with my folks, it was like you sat in the back and you played the license plate game and you slept and you read and hope didn't get car sick. Now it's like, I mean, it's kind of like when I was a band director, um, my kids all knew that when we got on a bus, there would be TVs and VCRs and then DVD players. You know, when I was in high school, we took a bus trip from Lincoln, Nebraska to New York city, no VCRs, nothing, you know, now I'm like, God, I need my game boy. So, Anyway, I remember when we when uh, we took my senior trip to Disney World, and we're all in the fancy vans with three TVs that you could put movies on. So we just put stuff like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura on it, and it was it was perfect. So, but by the way, uh, family vacations when you realize that planning for other people's fun time is a thankless job. Yes, <laughs> very much. Uh, a couple things, uh, a couple of post notes from uh, last week's show with uh, um, with Jason and uh, uh, Derek. Derek. Okay. Anyway, um, so first of all, um, I am now addicted to Super Mario Thirty Five. Um, oh uh, my lord! Yeah, it's yeah. like I, it, you, you play it, and it's like thank goodness you have an endless amount of quarters. You just keep going and going and going. That's so much fun. Um, the other thing is I've been watching the, the video game years on Amazon prime and that it's, it's like, um, I love the eighties, but video games, you know, it's like the same, okay. it's the same format. I mean, they, they, they've just robbed that whole format of, I love the eighties. I love the nineties that VH1 did. They just stole all that and just made it just video games. So really, really good. So if you have Amazon prime, do watch it. It's fun. It's not as. You know, it's very informative. It's it's not as like highbrow and serious as the one on Netflix probably was, you know. But um, you know, so like I said, really good watch. But anyway, I digress because today, uh, so like I said, Dave just got back from vacation. Um, you know, and so and Fredo and I. Well, I mean, it's just been a week for all of us. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to watch Solo, a Star Wars story, and we're just going to talk about it. As it goes. So this is one of those, you know, if you want to watch along with us, we're all starting on a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, and we'll say three, two, one and play, and then we'll just start talking about it. So it's our own little commentary track. Um, and so here we go. Are you guys ready? And ready. three, two, one, McClunky. And I got to turn down the volume so you don't hear all this. Um, so how'd you guys like the way, um, this Star Wars story started versus Rogue One? 
it's interesting, isn't it? I I prefer this one because it looked more Star Wars ish. It, it gave you a crawl without having a, a crawl. crawl, and it, it but you know it kept it kept the blue you know font from a long time ago in Galaxy Far Far Away. So I thought I thought it was well conceived. I liked the the start of this. I don't know. I guess my only question is why didn't they just give you a crawl? I I don't know why their underwear is all in a bunch over having a crawl in these non saga stories. I think they should, but but I mean we're I mean we've had two solo we have two Star Wars stories. I don't know. Dave, do you prefer one over the other? I think I like uh, the solo one a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about Ro the beginning of Rogue One on during our Rogue One commentary, and it was just it was too different. <laughs> like like they could have easily put some kind of crawl in, and they didn't. And it's just, just like I think most of us just came away from it thinking, ah, oh, they probably could have done that better. But I bet they agonized over it too. By the same token, they they probably sat there and just agonized. What are we going to do to open this movie? Um, apologies for my dog, if you hear my dog. She's very excited to have us back. Oh, never apologize for a barking dog. Uh, so, you know, it's in, I wonder how many people in this world never realize that there are dice in the Millennium Falcon in Star Wars, and now we've made it into this... Thing. Uh, yeah, a thing. That's just a good way to put it. It's like and you really, yeah, they just—it's it, just a toss-away thing in A New Hope, and then we've made it into like you know an Arthurian legend. I don't know. When did you learn that there were dice there? Did you discover that yourself, or did you hear about it on the internet, or what happened? Me, I—I I, yeah. I mean, I saw it in one of my watchings. It's just like, oh yeah, there's dice there, and I was like, I always caught the reference. You know, it was like the American graffiti. This was his hot rod so you can't have fuzzy dice but he just had some dice that was just like that's what i the fuzzy dice is what i was thinking about because like that's what i was looking for the first time somebody mentioned to me that there, there were dice in the millennium falcon i'm like all right well let's go looking for some fuzzy dice now because that mm -hmm. just is the most hilarious thing i've ever heard and i was like oh gosh i'm disappointed that they're not fuzzy and and Disney is all about hyperspace fuel now. I mean, with the Last Jedi, you know, yes. they're, they're they're running out of fuel. Yeah, Rebels. Um, then you have you know the uh, Smuggler's Run at Galaxy's Edge. You've got you're getting coaxium. You know, they're talking about coaxium here. I mean, it's it's the MacGuffin to get the the story on the road. But uh, it is. I remember. Um, the YouTube channel, Hello Greedo. He's really funny to watch and just gives some good insight on things. Um, but he's like, ah, please don't give me another movie. Oh, no, it wasn't Hello Greedo. No, it was Cinema Sins. They were saying, please don't. What are, why are we talking about fuel? Why are we always talking about fuel in all these new Star Wars movies? But anyway. Well, I mean, it makes sense from the standpoint of if you're in a rebellion trying to fight your way across the galaxy, you know, not being able to gas your hot rod will come back to bite you. And if you're a smuggler, you know, in a crime syndicate, that's going to be a hot commodity. Because, you know, there's everybody, people willing to pay for it. Because otherwise you're stuck where you're at. And, you know, one of the things that, that Solo does a good, a good thing at the start is it establishes 
how oppressive and ugly and difficult life is on Corellia. You can totally see why people want to get away. So as you say that, I've got up here um, 52 solo factoids and tidbits from Jonathan Kasdan. Um, said, first of all, that Lawrence Kasdan conceived of the notion of a Dickensian-type childhood for Han and Kira before Jonathan Kasdan was ever even involved. The other thing is that the white worms here, you know, Lady Proxima, is an homage to a thoroughly mediocre Bram Stoker novel, The Lair of the White Worm. In the original script, they were not worms, but uh, described as well-dressed vampiric albino aliens, a la David Bowie in The Hunger. So anyway, an homage mm -hmm. to Bram Stoker. I like the Lady Proxima character, and um, I was in. It was a decent, uh, decently creative riff off of um, the kind of subjugators that we had traditionally seen in Star Wars to this point. She was different enough to be interesting, um, and uh, you know, like to the point of the fuel thing, it's very much in keeping with social commentary. Um, Sci-fi traditionally tries to, to show us this alternate universe as a kind of a reflection on our own world. Um, and it's kind of a fine line you have to walk between being too reminiscent of our world and also, you know, not actually effectively commenting on our world. So um, I guess I'm, I, I, in that sense, I'm in favor of fuel becoming a, the topic du jour, but I'm also like, I, I, we've seen it a few times now, so I don't need to see it anymore. I mean, particularly you think about something like the Mandalorian, you know, at some point that's going to become, become a topic for an episode. Oh yeah, I'm sure it will. I, I do want to say something, too, right off the very top of this, because this movie, as you watch it, I want you to look through the lens of thinking about it through the eyes of this duality of rebellion versus subjugation, mm -hmm. because you're going to see that theme so much during this movie and it's going to beat you over the head with it. I mean, we've just seen it now and we're going to see it again in another few seconds or another couple of minutes um, when they're trying to get through the uh, Imperial blockade. And um, it just keeps coming up and it keeps coming up and it keeps going up. And the reason for that is because of his character and who he is. Right. I mean, there's obviously, I mean, when you look at the dereliction of authority that the empire has, the empire is all about subjugating people, and people are looking to break away from that. And as we see, uh, a model that's similar to AP5 get run over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but rest in peace. But it's something that a lot of the other systems within the galaxy have copied. The criminal and uh, syndicates have become, in a way, similar to the empire. I mean, they they look at characters like Han and Kira as disposable. What can you do for me? And, you know, you're working off a debt that you can never pay. So much in the way that the Empire just uses up people and spits them out, you know, that's kind of what Han is trying to get away from. But the problem is he ends up jumping from one to another to another because the whole galaxy is upside down. 
So another another factoid here, uh, as you as see, I'm just you guys are going really deep, and I'm just throwing out little tidbits here. So, um, but anyway, uh, said uh, in early drafts of the script, there was no speed or chase. Um, this is something that uh, they can see uh, that. Uh, um, oh, there's a lot of abbreviations. Who are who are the two original movie makers here? Um, oh, you mean um, the Kazdans? No, no, the no, two, no, the, no, the two that got uh, fired. Uh, Miller and uh, Lord and Miller. Lord yeah. Miller. Anyway, uh, well, it says C and P. I don't know. But anyway, um, yes. oh, I'm sorry, but but anyway, uh, what uh, Jonathan Kazan said is that uh, it went through many iterations once it came to be, and some cool ideas didn't fit in the in the in the movie. He said his favorite was involved the Tie Fighter cockpits fresh off the assembly line without wings rolling around like bowling balls. That'd so, be fun. That's what we well, could have had, kids. Well, and part of the problem is this is in reality the first movie we see without a lightsaber duel. Like, yeah. There, that makes no sense. Han is not a Jedi. There are no Jedi in the galaxy. Outside of a moment when at the end there wouldn't be a single moment of a lightsaber in this movie. So you have to, once you remove that action beat from this, you have to find something else to fill that in with. And Han is a fighter, a driver, a pilot, and a shooter. So you have to give those elements, move them to the foreground. So you're going to have a moment where he's going to be flying. He's going to have a moment where he's going to be fighting and shooting and smart-assing his way through the gallop, through trouble. You know what's going to drive. You know what's driving me nuts in a good way as I'm watching this is how many wide shots they put in, and but not for very long. It's like you, you just want to sit and look at all the things that they put in the frame, like the wide shot of Corellia that we had a little bit ago, the wide shot of the, you know, the spaceport that they're in. Um, the other thing I thought this movie did really well, um, much like Rogue One, is that they they captured the aesthetics of A New Hope without you know just a total copy it, it feels like it fits it feels like it fits um i would agree with that too um and uh, you know to your point uh fredo i think like showing that that speeder uh chase establishes his character right he's supposed to be a great pilot you know and so let's see it let's show me don't tell me um, and of course, he brags about it, and you don't know how much of that is truth and how much of that is fiction. But we've already got a hint that a lot of it is truth. And, and I think that's part of something that needs to connect, because because he, here's part of the dynamic that we all recognize about this movie: it's both paying homage to a character that we all know and love, while establishing his bona fide to speak, establishing him, you know, in a way before we truly come to know him as we did in the New Hope. So you have to see him as a character that's talking, you know, that's smart on his feet, that's quick on his feet, that can do all the things because it's it's gotta connect, you know, this Han Solo we meet here has to connect ultimately with the Han Solo we meet on Tatooine and that we know and love. So if you know, while he may not be that yet entirely that element has to be in him otherwise and yes be- i you know i and i agree i agree with you but i'm glad that it's not a strict you know it's not a one direct line but- yeah no, because yeah. if i mean if we're to if we're to look at you know if we could go back in the you know the delorean and see each of us 
when we were, you know, 21, 22 years old, and then compare that to what we are now, you know, right. yeah, you're going to, you're going to have some manner, but I mean, there's mannerisms and, and things that you pick up just from your experience through life, you know, and where you move to and things like that. So I guess what I'm getting at is that the people who are, you know, maybe a little bit critical of Alden Ehrenreich, you know, about that it wasn't, you know, it's, it should, it's not Han Solo. It's like, well, I mean, it's, it's just gotta, it's gotta be kind of a octagonal peg into a round hole, you know? Right. I mean, it would have been a more, I was just going to say, it would have been a more boring movie. I agree. Too. You know, because like you're subverting expectations somewhat by not having him fully realize, not having him be that character that you already know and love. Um, it's like, we're going to give you a little something different. We're going to give you a little different version. So real quick, um, this is a part where uh, Scott Colesby said is one of his least favorite moments in Solo was that they had the Imperial March actually being played. And it's in a major right. key. It's, they did that in Rebels. So it's one of those things that they put, you know, in universe instead of just being, you know, and I, I, I would agree with it. I don't know. I, it's it, it's kind of weird. But one, one thing that does, but the only really only big thing that bothers me about this movie is right here that the Imperial officer comes up with the last name Solo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would have been far more effective if Han would have just said, he goes like, you know, I'm Han. He's like, Han what? And he's like, um, Solo. Solo. You know, just if he, it's, if he would have thrown something like, I don't have anybody with me, I'm, I'm Solo. Mm -hmm. And it here, it just seems kind of goofy for the Imperial officer to go, mm, let's call you Solo. Solo. You know, it's like, oh, that's how it happened? All right. <laughs> you know what? It's terrible, but I love it. It's like a good terrible. It's like part of the canon now. And I just mm -hmm. like like some of the, the god-awful dialogue in the prequels. It's like it's part of it now. And so I sort of love it for that. Like, like midi-chlorians? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So another tidbit from the, from Jonathan Kazan. We wanted Mimban to evoke Kubrick's paths of glory and put Han into the most hellish possible war environment. Mm -hmm. Originally, there was a fourth member of Beckett's crew, Corso. And it, in some shots, you can even see him. His performance was great, but given the hectic environment, it became confusing to introduce that character we were going to immediately kill off. Um, the original logic for Corso, of Corso, who was a rather large man, was that Beckett had lost his muscle and Chewie is the most useful replacement. So, anyway. Which, little... in a way, yeah, wouldn't have worked given that they take Khan and Chewie together when they stole aboard their ship at the end. You know, if, yeah. if he had lost his muscle and he needed muscle and then gone, no, I guess it would have been a different dynamic if they had gone to rescue Chewie. But then that doesn't necessarily um, hit as well as it does the fact that it's the two of them working together to get out. You know, what Kasdan said, though, is something that is, oh, it just drives my wife and I nuts about this movie is that here's Tandy Newton and you love her you know, you love Val as a character and she's dead in about, you know, 10 more minutes. You know, you love Rio. I mean, that was, yep. that was a cool character as well. He's, he's dead in about 10 more minutes. <laughs> Sorry. Spoiler alert, everybody. But, um, you know, it's, that it, it just seems to be kind of uh, par for the course again for Disney. It's like, we're going to bring we're in these great characters and kill them off here real soon. 
I think in part it's, I mean, it's trying to service the idea that Beckett is, has nothing and no one necessarily with him. And he's, his losses have allowed, you know, have mounted to uh, create you know, a moment where he can, you know, betray Han, so to speak. What I think would have been more interesting is to see Val there when Beckett turns and tries to betray Han, because I think that would have created a more interesting dynamic for both Han and for Beckett. You know, so it gets to a broader question just about movies in general, you know, because I we hear about this all the time. It's like, oh, I wish I would get more. I want to know more about this character. I want to know more about this situation, you know, but it, it ultimately, you're, you know, the filmmaker is telling this story right here and, you know, you have to pep it along. But do you think, and it's kind of like when I was in the band, you know, we had a guy who said, you know, this, this song is too long for the CD. It's got to be at three minutes. If it's more than three minutes, people are going to turn it off. You know, that was his rock and roll mentality. Mm-hmm. Do you think people would sit through a three, four hour movie if they could have, you know, do you, th- do you think they would tolerate that long of a movie so that these people, these stories could be fleshed out more? Probably not in this case, not in this particular case. Um, this movie was seen as completely unnecessary from the beginning and got painted with that brush by just about every reviewer every you know armchair quarterback um film critic that you could find oh this is a completely unnecessary story so for those people lengthening this movie and making it bigger i think would have just it would have been dead on arrival i also think i mean that, i mean when you're making them i mean but this way i think adding more backstory and more opportunity for us to get to know the characters of Rogue one would have been wanted because the bigger character cast and you know each one has their own personality we want to get to know them here though the story is all about han and every character is serving the story of han yeah. and han's character is very quick-witted fast you know smart alec so to speak you know he you know a pondering serious let's take a moment to discuss more stuff and it was more characters kind of movie would have felt right. I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you right here. The point that Alden Eric Reich does the point. Mm -hmm. That's a Harrison Ford point. That was Mm -hmm. such, that was so spot on. (laughs) I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that was, I mean, that's, that, that, that is my, that's my, one of the big praises I gave to this movie was because I was not sold on a solo story. That was not like on my Christmas list and I ended up totally enjoying it. And the thing I loved about it was that, you know, Han and Lando, you know, Donald Glover and, and Alden, they, they captured the essence of those characters without doing an imitation, Mm -hmm. but there was enough of little nuances every now and again. The point was one of them, you know, that was a that was a Harrison Ford, you know, straight out of you know uh, Empire Strikes Back point, um, but like I said, they just they just did a good job of capturing the essence of the character. I'm very sorry I interrupted you, but that's one of my favorite points. In well, this no, 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 exactly, and again, and again, it speaks to the commitment that Alden took for the role. It's not just I'm going to be taking on the one of the most iconic movie roles of all time. It's I wanted to connect with who we know we're going to meet later on down the road. So, you know, while, while he said, you know, and he made the point, he said he wasn't deferential necessarily. He wasn't like, I'm mimicking or I'm aping Harrison Ford, 
there is some stuff that he has to do in order for his character to match up with that character because otherwise it doesn't make sense. I couldn't have loved this introduction between oh, Han and Chewie more. Did you did you think it was Chewbacca when this first came out? I mean, when oh, he yeah. was thrown down the pit? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't. I, I thought it was just going to be some rando monster. I didn't think that was going to be the introduction of Chewie. But it is. It's awesome. It reminds me of actually how I met my one of my best friends that went from elementary school to uh, high school was you know, we got in a fight and during recess and then like two hours later we were best friends, you know, so. You guys were chained together in a muddy pit? No, no, we didn't shower together either, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't speak in a foreign language that you knew, uh, that you by knew. The, by the way, knew. speaking of foreign language, uh, I have, did notice the first time I watched, uh, are you guys watching this on Disney Plus? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. The first time I watched Solo when it came out on Disney Plus, they did not have any subtitles, and they have since remedied that. Um, but what I did find was when there were no subtitles, the interaction between Han and Chewie still worked. You know, coming up here when Han starts talking Shriwook. I also should, you know, all of this works so well. One of the little details that works for me was Han taking a bite out of Chewie's shoulder. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like, what's this little, you know, weak human going to do against a freaking Wookiee? Um, you shouldn't hold up long at all. And so the desperation there is palpable. And, uh, and uh, here's the first of many times I'll probably uh, credit uh, Juna Suotamo's uh, physical performance as Chewbacca. Because mm. again, just just as important for Alden and Harrison's roles to match, Junas has to match what the late great um, Wookiee Peter did. Yeah, Peter, yeah, Peter Mayhew did. You know, regarding you know with his character, and you can totally buy that this is a young Chewbacca. Now it helps that we had seen him already in uh, the Force Awakens as that character, but still. So I have to I have to tell this story that you know. Before, well, I went to Finn McCool's one time and I saw their painting that they had of Chewbacca with a Guinness. And I was like, I gotta have that painting. And I found a place online to get it. And I took that to Star Wars Celebration in Chicago. And I had both Jonas and Peter Mayhew sign it. And um, Jonas was the first one to sign it. And he's, he's just a delight to talk to. And uh, uh, then, and actually, it was, well, so it's a Who Dat Jedi podcast because so as I'm giving the my name to his assistant, you know, he looks at you. So you know, my name's Aaron. He's like, oh, name of the best quarterback in the. He, I didn't say my name is Aaron. It's written on a piece of paper. He's like, oh, you got the same name as the best quarterback in the NFL. And I said, my name's not Drew. <laughs> and it was like he was like, ah, oh, okay, touche. But anyway, uh, so Jonas signs it first, and I, he goes, this is a great picture. And I, I told him the story about it, and he said, Peter's going to love it because he loves Guinness. Mm-hmm. And so it was the next day that I had Peter sign it, and um, he was going to sign it. And, um, and I said, you know, you and I have a uh, common friend in New Orleans, and it's a guy I'm in 501st with, Gary Bro. And uh, I said, we have a common friend in New Orleans, Gary Bro. And Peter stopped, and he looked up at me, and he just smiled from ear to ear, and he says, yes, we do. And um, 
That was, I mean, then he was. Then the thing is, he passed away three weeks later. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my Chewbacca story. So I've got that, but I've got that painting in my house with both of them signed. So it's really cool. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think you know, it's it's one of those, the dynamics that tends to go sort of under the radars. How many great physical performers are in the Star Wars saga and the Star Wars uh, movies? Well, you the know, thing is, you're, you're right. Chewbacca walks a certain way. And that's actually what Peter Mayhew was coaching Jonas about was, this is how he walks. Yeah, this is the most infamous shower scene. This is the best scene ever. <laughs> <laughs> For any guy who's ever had to uh, you know, scrub their dog while they're, they're, while they're in the tub. <laughs> but you're right. The physical, you know, actors that... what the. You know, R2-D2, you know, um, C-3PO, uh, you know, the, there's a long list. Jar Jar, uh, yeah. Sebulba, you know. You know, it's, it's, very, it's not easy just to replicate what somebody else does. Amazing performers mm-hmm. attached to this series. I like this little moment where they're sitting here, you know, wind blowing through their hair, talking about their futures. Yeah. It, it's a very it's a very private moment you know it's it's solidifying their you know their friendship um, right right because i mean we've only seen them being antagonistic towards one another i love this well chewbacca you're gonna need a shorter name <laughs> i'm not gonna call you that all the time you know one of the criticisms that uh people had for this movie though was that you know, okay, here is where Han met Chewbacca. Hey, this is how Han got his blaster. Hey, this is how Han got his Millennium Falcon. Hey, here's how Han, you know, it's like they, they threw in all the Han things into one movie. You know, um, I mean, did we need as, bl- we, need a, we need a blatant um, introduction to Chewbacca. You know, do, do we need, do you know, to know how he got his blaster? Or, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Do, do you think there were too many of these we've got to make sure we hit all these buttons or people are going to get mad at us in this movie? I, I think you have to separate what's needed versus what they ended up doing. He needs to meet Chewbacca. That's not, I think, on the, I don't know, there's not an option. You have to have this, if you're going to make a movie like this, you have to show him and Chewie together. Because otherwise that would be the biggest like if you do all the other stuff, but don't show Chewbacca in this movie, people are gonna be like, "Well, what the heck was Chewie?" Um, some of the other stuff, maybe it's extra, like the blaster, because it's not—it's not like I ever thought, "Oh my gosh, that's Han Solo's blaster." You know, I need to know where that came from. I figured he picked it up along the way. You know, you know, this isn't a lightsaber where there's some sort of connotation or family lineage to it. Uh, the Millennium Falcon—I I love the fact that we got to see it because. You know, it's always it was hinted at. So again, it's and unlike say something like the blaster or something, the Falcon in many ways defines the character of Han. So yeah, you have to have it. So another interesting Kasdan tidbit here. It says, in retrospect, Tandy Newton may actually have been too good and too interesting as Val. It was always <laughs> in the design of the story that Beckett would lose his trusted crew members during the conveyance job gone wrong and be forced to rely on the newbies, Han and Chewie, and 
this would also open the door for Lando, Kira, and L3 to join the crew. But Tandy is so compelling to watch that the death of her character feels a little like a cheat. Mm -hmm. It's an odd and unexpected problem that comes with working with such amazing, compelling actors in the Star Wars universe. You just want more of them. It's kind of like in Mandalorian. It's like, you know, Ming-Na Wen is in there and then, oh, she's dead. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. We didn't, you know, she, we just saw her lying there. She just maybe, you know, knocked out. Um, but, um, oh, what other ones did they bring in that they just, you know, you bring in these, you bring in these big characters and it's like, and big actors, and then they're just around for 10 seconds. Well, and, and, and I don't know if you guys, if you guys have seen the HBO show Westworld, where Andy's also one of the leads, and she consistently knocks it out of the park in her performances. She's just mesmerizing, captivating. Uh, she gets great dialogue and she knows what to do with it. So she gets where Val is supposed to be, where this character is. And so in many ways, she's the balance to Beckett. She's the one thing keeping Beckett from just being the world's biggest jerk, you know. So her, that's why in some ways she has to go. But at the same time, yeah, getting somebody like that. you talk, First of all, you recognize why losing her would hurt Beckett. But yeah, it creates a dynamic where you're like, you wanted to see more of her, which maybe that's a good thing because it's a bad thing. Yeah, I think he makes a good point, too, that story-wise, it makes sense for her to die when she does. Um, a lot of people critiqued it, you know, at the time and since. Like, gosh, why did she have to die? I don't want, I didn't want her to die. I like her character. Um, but for the story's sake, it, it did make sense for his crew to, you know, take losses and for him to need to rely on some new characters because we needed to have... Um, for the story's sake, they needed to fold Lando in, in some way. Well, I, I need characters that he's not necessarily emotionally attached to completely. Right. He, you know, Beckett's never leaving Val behind. You know, he might leave Han behind. Yeah, yeah. By the way, on another tidbit here, um, uh, first of all, I thought the casting in this uh, movie was surprisingly awesome. Um, I mean, Tandy Newton, you can't go wrong with, um, you know, Donald Glover was spot on for Lando. I was worried about Woody Harrelson just because Woody Harrelson tends to be kind of like Vince Vaughn. It's like, it's always the same guy. Woody Harrelson was awesome in this role, mm -hmm. you know, as just this pretty, you know, you know, morally, you know, bankrupt. I just, just as a, he, he just got the, the role down pat and you didn't, I didn't feel like I was watching cheers or white man can't jump. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm going to circle back briefly to what I talked about at the beginning, which was this idea of subjugation versus mm -hmm. rebellion. And this is where we're going to get the introduction of the, the emphasis, the character who is, ultimately Han Solo's path to freedom. Um, the last place he would expect <laughs> um, because she comes off immediately. She's introduced as this imposing one note villain, uh, you know, swooping in, trying to steal their score. Um, and it's just, you know, it's kind of a, the last place you would look is where you would find your path ultimately. And uh, I just think, 
and they 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 really try to play this trick on you with with that if you listen to the score her theme is so menacing and and just and it also is a woman's choir so they're giving <laughs> they're, they're giving it away that you know cuz i when you're first see it you just kind of assume emphasis nest is a guy you know and the voice yeah. makes it sound that way too but yeah yep. they're they're giving it away actually with the with the music which and it's also in a very it's it's in a, a register that it's almost childlike as well so you know that it's it, it shouldn't be surprising that is a you know teenage you know rebel fighter yeah. So when they return to that theme later in the movie, it, it becomes uh, almost more angelic, um, whereas here it's terrifying. Um, and and I just really appreciate the work that went into that. I thought the score was really well done. Mm-hmm. Would you say better than Rogue One's? Um, I think I, I think I, I it's I'm not going to say that it's neither one of them is to the point where I can go, Oh yeah, that's this part in the movie. But I, I thought it, I, I can just say, I thought it was really well done. Probably I like it better than rogue one because I like later on where you get some of the asteroid chase, you know, music um, you get, uh, you know, so you get some callbacks to the, the original trilogy. I kind of dig that. Um, right. But like I said, that, that whole thing about emphasis nest theme is I, I, I get geeked out over those things. Where, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's very much like there's a there's a piece of music that we played in college where um, there's this very rhythmic. It's called the Dream of Abraham, and it's about the dream that Abraham Zapruder had for months after the assassination of Kennedy. And in this piece of music, like the woodwinds are playing this very repetitive, but 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 but. And one at one time in the rehearsal, somebody said that sounds like Morris Code, and so our tuba player took the music home, his dad was a radio man in the Navy and they tapped out the rhythm and it was Morris code. It was the entire press release dateline Dallas, three shots rang out. It was the whole press release of Kennedy's assassination written into the music that way. And so when they do things like this, and that's why that's one of my criticisms of, I didn't get that as much in some of the prequels, uh, even though it was John Williams writing it, um, it, it wasn't as operatic as, you know, uh, the original saga. So when they do things like that in this one, I, I really get geeked out over it. So, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, but, I, by I, the I, way, going back right quick to Emphasis Ness and her crew, one of the things that I think, and this is, I don't know if it was conscious on their part or if they were just taking what was kind of in the side guys. You look at uh, at the headdresses. You look at their armor. You look at their how emphasis and her uh, I don't know if it's raiders, marauders, whatever their crew is called, is um, their behavior and what screams it screams out to me. Mad Max, the Road Warrior. It right. screams out to me. Yeah. Lord Humongous and his crew of of pirates, you know, trying to take the you know so using that movie language, those images that are embedded in the back of our heads to kind of help you give, get your shortcut to go, oh, these are, the, these are bad people. Don't trust them. To then turn right. around and subvert it later on when you well, go, oh, no, they're the good guys. And isn't that teaching us a lesson? It's like, you know, it's the, it's the 
you see a young kid wearing a hoodie walking down the street towards you and you automatically think that he's going to mug you. And it's probably 99.9% chance that he's the nicest person on the planet. Um, we, we judge people by, you know, the way they dress and by, you know, the way they look all the time. Um, and you're right. This is, so I think this is also, you know, people should, you know, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great message that it's sending here. Right, and, and they they don't call out to it. They don't announce it. They don't even mention it whatsoever. But it's something that because it's part of you know movie, you know imagery, we just go along with. So this is our first Western train heist in a Star Wars, Wars movie. <laughs> what did we think about the execution of it? Just the the idea of it being in a Star Wars movie. I I liked it. I loved it. Oh, that was great. Yeah. And yeah. one, of the, one of the tidbits here, they said this job was always, it was a part of every draft of the script. So they're always going to do a train heist thing. Anyway. I mean, it's, it's uh, first of all, given the Western uh, influences on Star Wars, you, you start thinking, why has nobody done it sooner? Yeah. Second of all, at the same time, I think it, it suits the character of Han Solo perfectly because, again, he's the most Western influence, you know, Gunslinger, yeah, exactly. Character. Well, this, is, this is basically this is basically the James Gang here, you know. Right. I mean, so so it makes perfect sense that if you're gonna do it in any movie, you're gonna do it in Hans' movie. And uh, so yeah, no, uh, it was really well done, and you know, I love the fact that keep popping up the stakes and open up the dynamics of okay, this is what they're trying to get, and here comes the. You know, the people on board the train, the guards on top of the train trying to stop them. And then here come the uh, Emphasis Nass Center crew trying to stop them. And now the bridge is out. By the way, gotta... che Chewy and Goggles is awesome. <laughs> it's every dog riding a motorcycle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good look. By the way, so have you guys uh, you, have you watched the deleted scenes from this uh, movie? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so you got to go watch the deleted scenes because they show some of Han's interactions at the uh, Imperial Naval Academy, and mm -hmm. you know him mm -hmm. being a an Imperial pilot. It it would have it would have just slowed this whole movie down. Um, mm -hmm. But I just wanted to throw that out because we're seeing him as a pilot, and he trained to be a pilot you know, in the, in the empire. So. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you know, they, they're always suggesting, I mean, it's always said that Han is a great pilot. I mean, you get to see it in the, in the, uh, in the original trilogy, but the idea of, you always knew that he had gone to the Imperial Academy, that he had some training, you know, that's always kind of been in the background. So while not seeing it felt disappointing at the same time, realistically, you're right. I mean, that's not the story I want to see. That's the story we're here to see. So it would have really slowed things down. So another thing I don't think we've ever seen in a Star Wars movie coming up here might be the first time anybody gets punched in the face. <laughs> I guess maybe, I guess Django and, uh, and Obi-Wan had a little bit of fisticuffs, but they didn't really throw any punches, did they? Hmm. No, no, and I'm trying to think. In, in episode three, the Obi Wan and Anakin do they're more kicks. Yeah, they're more like knees to the mix section or anything like that. And one of, okay, so another one of the deleted scenes here is when um, 
it, you see Beckett and Han and Chewie walking through the snow and Chewie throws a snowball at Han and Han turns and throws one back and they start having a snowball fight. I would have been fun, but it wouldn't have worked for this moment. I mean, it, it was, it was after this, after, you okay. know, they, you know, is after they gone through this and they're walking to wherever they need to walk. But yeah, it's a, a snowball fight. So, <laughs> but again, I, I, I said, okay, so Becca just introduced the idea to Han about living with a price on your head. Now, again, we know that this is something that's going to happen to Han. He's going to have to, what he just did right now, the math, the calculation he just, just did right now with the coaxium is something he'll do later on when he's smuggling for Jabba when he dumps his cargo and he ends up owing ha, uh, Jabba loads of money, which he can't pay. Yeah. And then that's a nice have... rhyming moment, by the way. That's, right. that's very cool. They rhyme there. So now, that's, I... that's why I go, maybe it wouldn't have fit that moment. Well, and it also gets into the decisions that Lord and Miller and Ron Howard made because that this the whole snowball fight was back when Lord and Miller were running things and you know the the rumor was that they were going for a more you know slapsticky type of han solo movie and that was rubbing kazdan the wrong way and it that's not what and you know this movie has its lighter moments it has but again i go back to that Irvin kershner of i needed humor but not gags i needed you know romance but not sex you know type of a thing so i was I'm, i think there might be some validity after you see that snowball fight as funny as it is mm -hmm. those oh, were some of the those are some of the decisions that they were making that may have not gotten us the best solo movie like i love the moment afterwards when they when they all agreed to follow beckett and go talk to dryden boss and beckett apologizing for punching Han in the face yeah. and Han goes Happens more often than you think. Yeah. <laughs> Again, funny without being a comedy. Yeah. Without being a snowball fight. Right. Um, you know, the, the tone of this movie, I, I've said that it resembles A New Hope mm -hmm. um, maybe more than any other Star Wars movie has. Um, it just seems to get that feeling of just an adventure with stakes but it's not too heavy. It's not too overwhelming or dark. It's got a little bit of that here and there, but um, I mean, look at this. I mean, here you are with the, you know, your cantina scene. Is this the best cantina scene since the original cantina scene? Well, it's uh, you know, it's also, you know, Jabba's palace. Right. You know? But it's, it's better than Jedi rocks, you know, but uh, <laughs> they have a it's cantabite without being so gaudy. Right. It, I mean, it, it feels right. They find, a, they find a way for Han and Chewie to stick out without being obvious. So um, another quote from uh, Kasdan here. It says, Paul Bettany is a man god. If you ever get a chance to work with him or even just hang out with him, seize it. He's one of the coolest people I know and not too shabby at acting. If you find yourself needing more Bettany after watching Solo, I would highly recommend revisiting Master and Commander, Far Side yes. of the World. Yes. One of my favorite and his countless brilliant performances. Um, uh, so 
another right before it says there was a debate surrounding how exactly Dryden would dispose of that unfortunate re regional governor. Some of us really wanted him decapitated, and we actually shot a version where the head rolls across the floor. Others felt that was a little too rough for Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, and how quickly did that change by episode nine? Yeah. Uh, uh, but no, uh, you know, Paul Bettany, uh, I thought he, again, great as that that gangster that it's like, he seems like such a nice guy, but he's just, you know, evil beyond evil, you know? Mm -hmm. um, they, and so they just played that up really well. And and by the way, we haven't talked about, um, oh, about Kira. Kira. Um, right. What, uh, Amelia Clark. Um, again, I thought she, so you guys were Game of Thrones fans, yeah? Mm -hmm. I was, definitely. Still am. Did, did you get uh, did you like get distracted by her being in this movie? Did you feel like I'm looking at Daenerys, and not uh, a new character? No, no, because I mean, first of all, the look is different. I mean, Daenerys was very much blonde. Yeah, and, but even more so that her character in Game of Thrones is very much. I am the mother of dragons. I am, you know, all, you know, I've been bestowed with great purpose and a great destiny. So. There's a sense of that character that she matters no matter what's happening. Whereas with Kira, when you first meet her, okay, she's, she's Han's girlfriend. And right here, when you're meeting her again, you understand that stuff's changed for her. It's a different dynamic. So, Oh, my gosh. This is the most, this is the most difficult scene, isn't it? What? Right. Well, just, just I mean, just the, the body language that's going on. It's like... Mm -hmm. Han's like, oh my God, you're here, and she's like, oh, dude, yeah. I gotta tell you some things. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is this is when you when you run into your uh, high school sweetheart at the ten year reunion party, and life has gone differently for the two of you, and they're like, yeah. Oh, and I, I love. Know. I'm sorry, I love Chewie slugging down to again there's there's the humor without being slapsticky so you know it's, and chewy having a guinness beard but anyway go ahead dave well I, I was gonna say i think fredo you had mentioned on an earlier episode that you thought this was one of the best acted movies in the whole mm -hmm. saga and mm -hmm. i tend to agree with you and uh, I know that Alden has had gotten a lot of critiques, but I also feel like uh, Amelia had gotten critiques as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't find any real fault with anything that she does in this movie. I think, I think people came into this movie thinking, oh, she's not as strong an actress as, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, ergo, I'm not going to like her performance here, but I, you know, I think she does a really good job. Well, she mm -hmm. does great. Uh, just watching her facial expressions change when she's she's trying to sell that, like, hey, everything's great, and then she gives just a quick little look, like, no, it ain't. Or you know, when she realizes that Han's working with Beckett, she has this realization that you know, every now and again, her oh. poker her poker face breaks. And it's mm -hmm. perfect at communicating in the, and it, uh, it's done obviously on purpose, but it's, it's communicates so much in this movie. Uh, one of the things that we have to, I mean, kind of acknowledge and recognize is most Star Wars movies, by and large, that the majority of the characters in most of them are who they say they are. I mean, Luke is very much who he is. Leia, there is no lie to her. She presents herself in a way. This is probably the first movie of any Star Wars movie where 
But for a few characters, everyone's duplicitous. Everyone's mm-hmm. playing a game. Everybody's playing a con. Everybody's trying to one-up one another. And you don't know who's truly trustworthy and who's going to stab you in the back. So from uh, Jonathan Kazan said, this, the scene that we're in right now, the scene in Dryden's study in which the Kessel heist is first proposed is one of my personal favorites in the movie. It's where Han really becomes Han in a lot of ways. The way he improvises to save their skin and the scene felt true to the man he eventually becomes, quote, we'll get the ship. We've already got the pilot felt like pure Han. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that is kind of an interesting point that, uh, and by the way, I love all the little, again, this is one of those things, look in the background because you see the idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> There's the, the crystal skull from one of the yeah. Han Solo novels. Um, there's also there's Mandalorian armor, which you know kind of makes sense because of its Crimson Dawn, you know, and who comes in later. But anyway, no, I I think that I I, I do I like this I like this scene a lot. Mm-hmm. And I know that there was a point there was some discussion about whether or not the character of Brian Boss should have been an alien, you know, an alien yeah. character, either makeup or CG, and ultimately they decided just to go with Paul Bettany and just do some makeup on his face, which I think in some ways works best in this instance, because you're asking him for uh, to act in that moment and deliver all that emotion and all that. You got to be able to see that behind the facade of niceness, there's, there's a killer there, you know, and if you have put say, you know, a character like Sebulba or a character, you know, like Jabba the Hutt in there, it, it might've gone lost. Because ultimately, you know, the character of uh, Dryden is the, is the big barrier between uh, Kira and Han. This is I just oh, every right. time I every time I see this scene, I just I I think of Al Capone. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like in like watching The Untouchables or something. Very much. Um, so. <laughs> but yeah. Hey, uh, um... Yeah, I, I like when you t- use the word duplicitous earlier, mm-hmm. um, and especially when it comes to Dryden Voss, because he he plays at being very friendly and concerned with your well-being, and then mm. he will brutally slice your jugular a second later. So, <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. the fact that the plan's coming together because everybody kind of sort of knows the piece. Like yeah. we mentioned, Savarine. Oh, yeah, Savarine. That's what totally what we're gonna do. So the best plans are made. Yeah. Exactly. All they need is a whiteboard. Um, yeah. No, you know, you talked about Fredo a little bit earlier. It's like everybody's, you know, trying to kind of stay one up on everybody else. Right. This whole movie, I was trying to figure out where Kira was where where it was her alliance was she going to screw over han in the end is she really you know is she putting on a show the whole time you know is that that but again that speaks to how amelia clark played that role Mm -hmm. you know just with i thought it was just really well done that can be kind of a just a trope too so it's like oh this is the person are they going to betray you eventually and so you sit here and you're worried about that and i i I think i had the same experience on first viewing i'm like gosh is she going to betray them um and it didn't really matter uh by the end of the story Mm -hmm. um i mean ultimately 
she kind of fell in the middle somewhere. She helped yeah. on, kept Han alive, um, but maintained her loyalty to Crimson Dawn. Well, and you, you talk about your theme of subjugation. Um, mm -hmm. Total abusive relationship here between Dryden Voss and, and uh, Kira. That's, you know, when you, you see that right at the end there where he's like, this doesn't work out. I'm going to have to kill you all. You know, it's like, you know, it, so you, you kind of appreciate her, the situation she's in. Right. And, and of course, you know, the, the crew the, itself, um, which she, I, she's now part of, but the rest of the crew, they're all in it up to their necks. Um, they are not free. They have to do this job. They have no choice. The yeah, um, says we'll be out of options if you fail. And you're going to get to meet two new characters here who, who have their own sort of spin on that theme, which you, you have um, Lando, who's absolutely a slave to money. Um, and when we meet him here, his ship is actually locked up. So he can't even, you know, make ends meet for himself. Um, and then you have... Um, uh, L3, uh, who immediately, the second she appears on screen, you, she's trying to liberate the droids, you know, and because... By the, by the way, I'm sorry, this this right here is the cantina scene. <laughs> the, 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 the sabak table. table. But it's just, again, wonderful. These are all, you know, none of this is computer generated. It's all, these are all puppets and all, you know, costumes, costumes. and things. Mm -hmm. And it, it just works. And they're... You know, um, have, you, have you guys ever played Sabak? No, I no, haven't no. either. <laughs> are we, we going to have to learn? Uh, yeah. Maybe we should get a deck and, and maybe that'll be a, maybe that'll be a podcast episode. Aaron, Dave, and Fredo learn teach themselves how to play Sabak. We'll um, this interaction between Lando and Han is pitch perfect. Mm -hmm. It's just you know. It's adversarial, but they they know that each other is full of crap. You know, it's when you it's when you've come up against, um, you know, don't kid a kidder, right? You know, it's like you've you've come up against an equal, really. You know, and you're like, all right, you know, but they I, they both recognize it. And I have to say, one of the throwaways, um, the joke about how he mispronounces his name. Yes, yes. I mean, that's a perfect example of going back to something that had occurred in a previous film. It drove us um, all nuts in Empire Strikes Back when he called yeah. him Han. It's like, Han! Like, <laughs> Why are you calling him Han? It makes no sense. Um so play off of it here. He does it intentionally to get mm -hmm. under his skin. <laughs> uh, I love the moment with the eyes. So um, at this point, it goes, with, this is from Kazan again. At this point, it goes without saying, but Donald was born to play Lando. I remember the thrill of seeing his screen test, then the thrill of watching Bob Iger and Alan Horn watch his screen test, all of us knowing how much fun that was going to be and that he would steal each and every scene he was in. This was before Atlanta or Awaken, my love, but uh, after Community. In my opinion, Donald needs to don the cape again, and the sooner the better. That's from John. So, so again, it's uh, please come make a Disney show series 
the Land of Coalition Chronicles, please, because God, and you know, we're, getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, but that if they don't, if they if they create a Lando series and they don't call it that, then they've just you know <laughs> totally missed the boat. Um, yeah, I was, you might want to quit while quit while you're. you're <laughs> Like I said, they both, uh, I, I come back to it, they both got the essence of the characters, but Donald Glover got some cadences and some just little nuances that is so Billy D. Williams mm -hmm. that <laughs> that it's almost like it to, to make it that subtle, man, you, you got to be good um, mm -hmm. because it, is, it just, it doesn't I, seem forced. I don't think, I mean, I don't think Alden spoke to Harrison about his role. I wonder if Donald spoke with uh, Billy D about his. I don't know. All you need to do is probably just watch a lot of Colt 45 commercials and, you know. <laughs> no, because it's, I mean, if you go back and watch any stuff that Billy D did in the late 70s, early 80s, this is, he's very much channeling all that. <laughs> and here's where he cheats him out of the game. So I've, I've given Disney and Lucasfilm a lot of grief. I think we all have for not having a plan um, over the last few years. Um, and a lot of people talked about how this was an unnecessary movie, but I, you know, it really ties in really nicely with the sequels in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. And nostalgia of it, these characters, particularly Han Solo and Lando and Chewie. Um, but you know what it also did was, since I caught you in a breath there, what it also did was it made Star Wars fun again. This mm -hmm. is not a heavy Star Wars movie. Star mm -hmm. Wars has been heavy since, you know, I mean, really through, the, three. through the prequels and the sequels, this is just a fun romp. You know, um, that, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice, you know, when you're going through this knowing, okay, I, mean, I know Han, Lando, and Chewie are all going to make it out. I know that's going to be good, you know, but let's just see what, you know, story they can take me on. It's just, it made Star Wars fun again. You know what I really like? I really like heist movies. And mm -hmm. I, also, I also really like movies that are set in outer space. So thusly, I really like a heist movie that is set in outer space. And you don't get a lot of that uh, yeah. elsewhere. And so like for, for, for me, that made this movie um, very worthwhile. Just, I get to watch a space heist? Okay, sign me up. Well, then you got, uh, you got Beckett here who's, you know, Lando clearly realizes that he's not going to win this fight. I mean, I've often said it. It's like when I was teaching, it's like, and, you know, it's like if you, a girl fight is the worst because they don't care how much bigger the other one is and they will just go to town. Two guys, when they're stepping up to each other, like if, like if I was step up to Fredo, I'd size him up and go, this guy is a lot bigger than me. So I'm just going to talk my way, just throw a couple jabs out of it with my, you know, and then I'm going to walk away because he's going to beat my butt. That's what's going on here with Beckett and Lando. You know, they, you know, Lando sized up and he was like, okay, just a smidge out of my league. Um, 
So, okay, so I'm going I'm to throw a random question here. You remember we did, did you remember your worst moment in the Star Wars movie that you mentioned, Aaron, which was Ponda Baba and Dr. Advice and, and oh, sure. in Rogue yeah. One? Wouldn't they have fit much better in this movie to, for that moment? Or in, a moment to have those characters back would have been better here than yeah. Rogue One? I think I, I think that that it wouldn't have been all that bad in Rogue One if they hadn't have just stolen the same beat line from you know beat for beat from A New Hope. It was just kind of hokey. Um, so um, from Kazan again, L three was a character conceived in conversations um, between CMP, LK, and myself. It's interesting to see how divisive she's been in these extremely divisive and politically charged times. If you're interested in that particular conversation, there was a great piece by Spencer Kornhaber in The Atlantic and another by Kate Gardner on the Mary Sue that illustrate different, uh, different points of view and the passion people feel about Star Wars. The truth is she actually evolved out of um, CM's astute observation that it was funny that the bartender at Moss Eisley objected to 3PO, considering droids seem to be the least rambunctious folk in the galaxy. <laughs> so uh, I guess I just leave that out there. Um, I'm just going to say L3. I thought K2SO was my favorite droid. L3 was is now right up there with him. I thought it was one of the best characters in this movie. Mm -hmm. No, and I think, again, it goes to something that they did really well in both Rogue One and this one. They got really great voice actors, and that one was Alan Tudyk. He was Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And they told them exactly what it is that they needed this character to be, and they just nailed the part. Again, it goes to the idea of, and I, and I don't know if, who did, whether it was completely CGI or there was some motion capture for L3, but again, gives her, there's a uniqueness to it. We've not seen a, a droid like her before. So... Her Actually, it was it was, huh? it was motion capture. She wore the green suit and the uh, hat. Yeah, so that must not have been fun. But but it's the idea of we're gonna give you a, a new and different droid. It's not gonna be a, a copy of a copy of a copy. And I think particularly when you're trying to establish these characters, both the humanoid and the non-humanoid, anything that gives some personality goes a long way. And I can't wait to talk to Brittany Williams again about the fact that she, you know, she was on our podcast previously um, and she's writing a uh, portion of the a Certain Point of View and she is writing L3. We mentioned it on our uh, show last, last week. Um, so something moved her to be, that's what I want to write on about Empire Strikes Back. Um, and I can't wait to hear that, that story from her. Um, so what I love most about her character is how you, uh, how the other characters are impacted by her journey as well, because her journey towards freedom for droids leads to just such an emotional moment for Chewbacca on Kessel, and um, and then through that you get even a greater. Um, uh, intensification of his friendship with Han because of Chewie's emotional needs in that moment and Han seeing that and recognizing that and helping him through that. And and L3 makes all that possible. And it, again, it goes to the idea of how 
We've only seen her now for a few minutes. She's already told Han to get his presumptions behind of her seat. But you've already established her as a character. You know who she is, or you have some idea of her personality, of her dynamic, so that uh, when the moment comes for the emotional beats to happen, they land. You care about her. You care about what happens to her, much in the same way that by the time we get to K2's big emotional moment, it lands, you know, <laughs> it hits like with everything when that happens. So again, from Jonathan Kasdan, the, the scene we just, uh, well, we're just kind of got out of here. The scene where Han and Lando discussed their parents was in part inspired by Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, Born to Run. Um, since so many of the characters in Star Wars are orphans or the product of some great tragedy, we wanted the story of Han's parentage to hint at something more complex and less romantic. His father led a working class life full of disappointment, and he had a complicated, difficult relationship with his son. Han eventually ran away from that relationship. I like to think that Han's father was still out there somewhere drinking himself to death. So that's what Kazin was thinking about, about where Han came from. And by the way, where the, the hollow chest here, this is a great throwback, you know, seeing Chewie learn how to play. Which yeah. I mean, ex explains why he's such a good player when we meet him years later, because he's been working at it. And we're also coming up to the scene here in the closet, the with, in the cape closet, um, that was inspired, <laughs> inspired by George Lucas, because originally... Han was supposed to hang up the cape, and I think Kira is trying on Han's or Lando's uh, Bespin cape, isn't she? Yes, right? he, is. he is. But anyway, he was originally going to hang it up, and George Lucas said, "No, Han wouldn't hang it up. He'd just throw it off to the side like this." So when you see Han do this coming up here, um, that is totally George Lucas. Mm. And again, this scene also mirrors the scene in Empire when it's. Han and Leia by themselves in that, uh, that little alcove where they're you know, fixing the, the, the ship. Right, right, right before C-3PO McClunky box him. Yeah. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, yeah, that same idea is echoed here. I love how clean the Falcon is, too. <laughs> it's immaculate. Yeah, There's it's only like, a few years. It's like somebody. It's like somebody who has a, a '65 Mustang, and the seats are all, you know, ripped up, and the, you know, the you see a there's a hole in the floorboards and everything, and you just think about what that car looked like, and actually in '65. Um, I I think about that line from Guardians of the, the Galaxy where he talks about the if you took a black light to this place, it would yeah. look like a Jackson Pollock <laughs> painting because like this plate this ship gets so filthy. I mean, it's yeah. in, it's insane how bad a uh, care they give to this ship. I mean, just looking at the Beckett and Han as they're walking through the halls, they're pristine. They never yep. look this good ever again. I love the fact that here, yeah, this it's it's interesting. Beckett has taken a moment of concern for Han because he's you know he's seeing her him try to rekindle his relationship with Kira, but he understands in some way that the Kira that he knew in Corellia is not the same Kira that's here. Or, you know, yeah, but I guess the cynic in me is more like, um, you know, this is, 
any romantic entanglements is going to screw up my chance of getting my money and possibly get me killed. So it's True. not, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know if he's looking out for Han's best interest or, or his or own. Is he, or is he looking at it as a, they may form a blind or a tandem that may come and well, bite me. So I need to find a way to keep them separated. I think actually it speaks to the, the struggle that, that Beckett has in this movie. He wants to be a loner but he's attached to Val. He wants to be a loner, but he becomes a he becomes attached to Han, you know, in that mentor type of way. Um, so I, I love that you know, moment. I love this moment with L3. It's like, you know, Han Landa goes, you need anything? She goes, equal rights. Yeah. <laughs> so the Kessel Run, did you, uh, I mean, what? Not, what, how what? I, not how I imagined it, right? Nope, you know, not at I mean, all. <laughs> I, that's what I was getting at. Is like, but but were you like uh, were you like uh, that wasn't the way I knew about it, or were you like I'm, all right, cool? Yeah, pretty pretty much the latter. Yeah, I mean, I I was along for the ride. You talked about this being just kind of a fun joyride of a movie. Um, well, so my my point about it, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I remember again, I was the one who was you know sitting at the bar going, I don't need a solo movie. It's like they're the Kessel Run. Really, I mean, I know that everybody in that ship is going to get out of this, you know, out of the Kessel Run alive. Everything's going to be fine because, you know, and but I still found myself, even the second viewing, when Fredo and I went and saw it, um, in the second viewing, I was still gripping the seats during the Kessel Run. So they just, they did such a good job at, you know, making you forget about all that junk of like, I know that everybody's going to get out of this, but it was still such a good thing. But yeah, no, I didn't, I thought the Kessel Run was going to be, I don't know, I guess I don't know what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, uh, that's just it, because it's something we lived with for 40 some odd years. And so in other words, we'd have plenty of time to imagine what it would look like, what it would take, how it would shape up. I don't think many of us had anything approaching what's in this movie. That said, What's in this movie is excellent. You know, yeah, I mean, way to keep up in the states. How are you going to make it interesting? Like, if it were just, oh, we're going to just fly the ship really, really fast, right? Um, because that's how it had always been sort of described. Like, it's the fastest ship in the galaxy. So, what are we going to just see them in hyperspace for another the next hour, and that's it? You know, yeah. no, they had to they had to come up with some action beats. Another, throw, I think another line that people miss here is when Lando says, mining guilds are the worst. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah that's a good one. Because Bespin was, it, you know, so you're part of the mining guild then. Well, no, we're into that. But he, he was, you know, doing the exact same thing. So anyway. And uh, these the Pikes? They're the Pikes, yeah. So if you're a Clone Wars fan, here you know, people were geeked out over seeing live-action Pikes. You know, and I totally missed that. I mean, I, I've, you know, seen this movie a half dozen times, and I still didn't even really realize that there were pikes in this movie until one of you guys mentioned it a couple of weeks back. I, was I like, think I only knew it you know, because I, I listened to the Star Wars Underworld podcast. So, um, what do you think about uh, Beckett wearing Lando's uh, future custom skiff guard uh, outfit? No, I mean, again, it's a minor callback in and of itself. It's fine. Because uh, it doesn't mean anything to anybody, you know, meaning 
you know, in-universe it means nothing. Whereas to, uh, to the fans, they go, oh, that looks cool. So Yeah, it would make sense that it would still be on the Falcon all those years later as a something they could use later. And, I, you know, I think, yeah, it's not a big deal either way, but it's a fun little nod. So I guess my question is, do you think any of the capes land the Lando left behind in the, in the Falcon? <laughs> Oh, he didn't leave any of the capes behind. No, he <laughs> took those capes. <laughs> the cape collection is extensive, so. Well, you know, remember at the end of uh, Empire Strikes Back, he's wearing Han's clothes at that point. So. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Maybe, the, uh, maybe, maybe Han Solo burned anything that Lando might have left. Love when L three says, and they're to be tagged and clipped, and he's like, "What do you mean clipped?" And she says, "Uh huh." <laughs> you know and again l3 actually throughout this scene really is playing kind of the c3po role of you know the little one-liners that you know just bring levity to a stressed situation you know but yeah, but it'd be uh, the difference being that with C3PO, when he gets to a moment that is like off putting, he goes, <gasps> you know, he kind of panics at that moment. Where L3 is more like, wait, what? No, yeah, and she gets into the fight mode here, right? Yeah, and this this whole plan here is just everybody kind of BSing their way through everything. Um, and here comes the most obscure reference, and when uh. Um, Kira uses Terascasi. Terascasi, yeah. That's yeah. And that's from a video game, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, and actually, I'm sorry. Of... I'm sorry. I've heard that that when you see the Grimorians in the ring uh, in uh, the Mandalorian trailer, Mandalorian season two trailer, right. there's talks that that might be a Terascasi match. Well, no, yeah. What happened? Is they, the way that they spun it was that yeah, there was a video game back in '97 for the PlayStation called Star Wars. Masters of Terror's Castle. It's basically this was back during the fighting the fighting game craze of the nineties where everybody was trying to be either the next Street Fighter or the next Mortal Kombat. So they put all the Star Wars characters from the original trilogy in a fighting game, which, you know, okay, so you put Han against you know, you put Luke against Vader. Okay, it's a it's a lightsaber duel, okay. But what happens when you put um, you know, Han against Vader? We've seen how that works, so it's just it's hilarious that they you know they even making a reference to that because it's not a game that was well reviewed or sold great and you know it's like a very deep cut. It was a fun cut though because I yeah. I remember catching that in the on my first viewing of this movie and it was like oh that's a fun reference. Mm -hmm. I laughed when I saw when I heard it. Congratulations, you liberate. It's good. Go liberate your brother or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, even just they showed there just the monitor is that, you know, that 2D, you know, vector like graphics type thing. That they, that's the way things looked on the Death Star, you know, in A New Hope. Um, just some of those little attention to details I thought was cool. And, and in a way, I mean, and, and while it could be easy to kind of try to spice it up and make it snazzy or new or whatever, I think by making it the way it is, 
it adds to the whole veracity, to the whole realism of the environments. Because you wouldn't think that, okay, you're talking about a, uh, a mining guild operation where they're using slave labor and the like, that kind of thing. So you wouldn't look for, you know, Star Trek-style halls and the monitors. It, it should look dingy and kind of dirty. <laughs> that gonk droid like smashing the panels and stuff. That's right. <laughs> I you know I just um, you know I I love this whole sequence. Um, you know, and they play it for laughs and like, oh look at all the droids and the hijinks they're getting into. But then it belies the deeper themes, which this is the whole point of Han's story in this whole movie is he's trying to find freedom. And what, however, he would define that for himself. Right. He wants to be his own man, and he wants to make his own way through the galaxy. And um, and yet he can't break free throughout this whole movie because he doesn't know how. Um, right. He just he can't figure it out. And so, you know, here is this like reflection of that um, of that theme, where it's like, here are these other characters that are trying to achieve the same thing. All these slaves are trying to break free. The droids are trying to break free. Um, it's just, just really fun rhyming. And we talk about Star Wars and rhyming and you know, making these, these, these themes apparent over and over again. But I think it's a really effective way um, to tell a story. And, and again, I mean, it's it's something that's with baked within the fabric of Star Wars, because the mm -hmm. whole point of um, having to fight for freedom is in its essence. I mean, whether right. it's the grander story or the more personal stories, and but fighting for what, how you define that freedom is also important. sorry. Also, sorry, Indiana Jones reference right here, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when he walks into the vault, that yeah. it, the staff and everything is just perfect. Sorry to interrupt your very thoughtful no, conversation yeah. there. Um, no, so I just I was just saying, you know, you know, like like Dave was saying, the idea of being able to define what freedom means to you, and for for Han, it's okay, I want to have my ship and I'll be able to fly around the galaxy and do whatever I want and not get in trouble. But it's and also it's also interesting, you know. I love this. How you know Han Solo. Um, is interested in himself, whereas right now, whereas Chewbacca is being selfless and he wants to go help the Wookiees. You know what I mean? And I think, and you see, you see Chewbacca throughout this whole movie, you see Chewbacca shape Han as well and make him into a little bit more of a softy. And yes, Lando is a vlogger. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Han is that ally here. Because he he helps Chewie in that quest to help others. Yeah, he's not doing it himself. He hasn't gotten to that point yet in his right. development. But he he is a good enough friend to his own friend that he can help him achieve what he wants. Another couple of guards just spotted me. And I love the gag where he has to like haul all that heavy crap himself through the corridors here and it's just like uh this is impossible <laughs> but nobody feels sorry for him you know yeah. he's, nope. 
the rascal who's gotten himself into this mess, so he has to get himself out of it. Oh, we forgot to talk about uh, Chewbacca ripping somebody's arms off. Oh, actually, no, that's finally, that's no, it's, uh, it happened. It happened a while ago. Uh, we we're deep in conversation, but we actually, yeah, uh, we actually see Chewbacca with arms ripped off of people's bodies. Uh, it's, it's been suggested. Well, we got to see it. The uh, person who is leading the Wookiees to freedom is Anthony Daniels, oh. by the way. Um, here, coming up here pretty soon. But uh, I will say, as great as Donald Glover is, he doesn't shoot a blaster very well. He looks kind of goofy here. Because he's dodging. He's, uh, he's trying to duck. It's a, yeah, it just kind of looks goofy. I don't know. <laughs> You get the he's, just, he's also stiff, but then again, that's that's all right. I mean, and I, and I guess part of it is it's he wasn't expecting to get into the middle of a shootout. He's a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, he is very much a lover. He's a vlogger, not a fighter. He's a vlogger. So you know what's what's what I really dug about this is that here, the you know the guys are doing their best to hold everything off, and they're you know kind of in over their heads, and. Pretty soon, you know, Kira runs into the ship, takes off the cape, and comes running out with a bunch of grenades and saves everybody's butt. You know, I'd, again, I'd, I think what Disney has done right with the Star Wars movies, and we always, we've talked about it before, we always had Carrie Fisher, we always had Princess Leia, but she always was still kind of that damsel in distress, at least in the first movie, um, and then was kind of a romantic interest in the second movie. But the Disney movies have made have taken women to the, you know, a little bit more to the forefront and saying, you know, we can hold our own and we can kick some butt. And oh, I thought we had a frozen Dave for a second, but we don't, he just moved. Uh, but, uh, and the death of L3 is really sad. Oh yeah, it is. And because again, it's, she's fighting for what she believes for her definition of freedom. And it, it also tells you that beneath the, the facade that Lando is putting on, that there is a character who cares for, you know, and that's part of the dynamic that really at this point right now when Chewbacca says goodbye to the other Wookiees, calls them back to them, you know, in, in many ways they're, they're his tribe as much as the other Wookiees were. You know, it threw me at first the lack of fur on the faces, but it made sense when they explained it after the fact. Yeah, emaciated, yeah. Emaciated, working down the mines, not getting good uh, hygiene or uh, hair care products. <laughs> hey, look, look, wait, don't you use the shampoo for your dogs? <laughs> <laughs> yep, there she is, launching the grenades. I like that shot too, Han backing into the Falcon. And of course, of course, Han or uh, Lando had to sustain an injury, so he can't fly the ship. Right. So that Plus, Han can. Yeah, and he's and he's worried also about L three. Right. I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? No, 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 no. I was just going to say no. There's the moment where he okay he gets behind the pilot's chair, but it didn't yeah. really strike me why there were two of them until Force Awakens when you realize you'd need a co-pilot. 
in order to man the the shields and all the other stuff that's needed to run the ship. At which point I went, well, how is it that so many times people get behind only one and they're like, I mean, at that point I started thinking like stuff like, okay, so when they're getting away from the Death Star, that means that Chewie's piloting and Leia's the co-pilot. So uh, another, um, well, first of all, a couple of Kasdan quotes here. Going back to uh, Lando's, you know, skiff guard costume. Uh, he said, I wish there was a special feature where you could see Beckett toss aside the armor and mask he uses as a disguise on Kessel, then just settle into a time-lapse shot of that gear lying in the closet in the Falcon for like 15 years until Lando <laughs> picks it up and wears it as a disguise himself in Jabba's palace. And if you're wondering why or objecting to how interconnected the movie is with others, it's because that's the kind of nonsense I think about. So that's from Kazan. The other one was... Uh, he said, an imperial blockade was something we wanted to see the burgeoning smuggler deal with. He went through many, uh, we went through many iterations of that bit as well. For a long time, the idea was that the Falcon got stuck in a tractor beam and Han had, Han, Han had uh, the idea to disrupt it by removing a small amount of coaxium, putting it into Lando's mini ship and launching the mini ship and the destroyer. We have even filmed this version, but it was incredibly time consuming and the Kessel Run hadn't even started yet. So originally, they weren't even going to go into the Maelstrom. It was going to be they're just caught in a tractor beam. I like this version better. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that Han's like, look, I know these guys. They're not going to send a TIE fighter against us. And here they come. <laughs> and I'm sorry, again, one of my... One of my I keep saying one of my favorite scenes. This I love this coming up when you know, right now Chewie's in the back seat. Mm -hmm. And you know, when finally Kira realizes, all right, you need to be sitting here, not me. You know, it's just it's such a pivotal moment. I love it. And we finally get a confirmation on Chewie's age. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. I love that he goes, wait, you're going to go into the maelstrom? And she was like, no, don't do that. Yeah, shaking his head, no. I, I like the, um, you know, at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves again, um, the, the whole maelstrom section is really good, but uh, the, the payoff with the engines failing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That sound. That sound. And everybody in the theater just groans. Everybody knew what happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> it was the perfect payoff. By the way, they only ever used the ventral gun, the one below in the, in the Disney movies. There's there a reason why they can never use the ones up at the top anymore. I don't know. But I love how the readouts are the same. That was all good. Um, I mean, really, you could you could be looking at Mark Hamill, you know, in mm -hmm. the gun right now. They just did such a great job recreating these sets. Just a little bit cleaner is all, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, L three. This is the um, the sequence. Yep. Where L3 gets uploaded into the Falcon. 
That's a nice, that's a nice move by Han. I might be a few seconds ahead of you where he mm-hmm. does the barrel roll and smashes the TIE fighter. Uh, yeah, I got yeah. way ahead of myself with the Chewbacca in the back seat. But yeah, right yeah, here, yeah, Chewie's yeah, like, like, here, let me. Boom, boom, boom. 190 years old. Is that, is that young for a Wookiee? I don't, I don't know. know. We should look that up, I guess. But here, right here, this is, and, and the music is great yep. here. I mean, because now all's right with the world. You know, they're in their seats. This is where the Whoa. Falcon starts turning <laughs> to trash. <laughs> yeah, and I love that she grabs the cave. Like, no, that's no, a custom. <laughs> That that uh, that oh. wide shot of the Falcon when it flies into the uh, port too later on, where it's just like completely destroyed. Love this it's line so from good. love this line from Beckett. I really hurt my thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this whole scene again. We know they're going to make it out, but it's just like mm-hmm. you know how they resolve each. You know, and by the way, here the the. He this thing he learned from his friend Needles. Yeah. A tip to Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Back to the Future three, actually. Yeah, now we're all just getting caught up in the chase scene here. But uh That's right. the only my only criticism of this whole sequence is everything is so dark that it is tough to make out really anything. And I don't know if they did that intentionally to make you feel even more on edge, you know, because you can't really, all, all you see is gray and, you know, black and... It looks like when you're red. flying through a thunderstorm. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, it's also in part to, uh, I mean, because, I mean, you have the, you've created now the expectation that the only safe passage is the one you took in. There has to be a reason why nobody else has done this, and so they're gonna, you know, show you why it is that it's so difficult, so visibility zero, nearly zero. You got all the stuff flying at you at any moment's notice and and just wait till you see uh, something coming up that you know, might want to eat you. You know, I think uh, Brittany Williams brought it up, but it is interesting that when they plug L3 into the Falcon, then you get that hum mm-hmm. that you always heard in the Falcon that you hadn't heard previously. Um, but I mean, in you know... The original trilogy, you heard that little. There's that that characteristic hum within the Falcon, and it doesn't come in until L three gets plugged in. So I thought that was kind of a cool choice. Um, so from Lawrence Kaz or no, but Jonathan Kazan, the creature the Falcon encounters in the Maelstrom had a long road to the screen. In the earliest drafts, the Kessel Run was interrupted with a forced pit stop on a spooky Ridley Scott-type planet. <laughs> on that nameless planet, Beckett's crew encounters enormous uh, of Craftian monsters that claim one of their one of their number. Um, when CMP got involved, they determined correctly that the pit stop would kill the momentum of the Kessel Run. Later, when working on the sequence with Ron Howard, the notion of a Lovecraftian monster returned as we are both huge Lovecraft fans. I remember um, 
Kathleen Kennedy would go to her office and Google images, uh, frilled sharks and giant squids for references. <laughs> she loves that stuff. One thing we stumbled across while working on this was a fantastic short film teaser directed um, Rari Robinson called The Leviathan. Mm -hmm. You can find it on YouTube and Vimeo. It had been long rumored to be turned into a feature, and I sincerely hope it will be. The same sum of uh, Vermeonth is another, uh, sorry, but anyway, they, he's just going into all the things that went into when I'm just looking at, they just needed a space monster, but, uh, right. you know, and like what, one of the things that I liked about this particular sequence was like the black hole aspect of it. Yeah. Like they're trying to avoid the event horizon where you get pulled in and you die. Um, and, uh, we've seen that trope in several science fiction films, um, and stories over the years we haven't seen it in Star Wars yet so this is what we're talking about how we hadn't seen the the uh, train heist before we hadn't seen a, a tussle with a black hole type of an event and uh, um, it was welcome <laughs> it's overdue well, we finally got it and I liked it well and I like the fact because it creates an enemy I mean, they're, not, they're still being chased but they're also stuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that you know, the, the monster's still trying to destroy the Falcon. They're still getting pulled back. They're they're getting ripped because they're uh they're, they're taking everything in order to uh, uh to stay off out of the mall. And uh they're calculating their path to get out of there, but so but they're still stuck, they're not moving, which it's a, it creates tension because you know how like they're gonna get out of there. Or how long this can hold out. Well, and of course, and you also got the coaxium element of this and Beckett, you know, tripping over things and, you know, as he's running with highly explosive stuff. I mean, like I said, it just, there's so many things that even though, again, even though, you know, everybody's going to get out of it fine, you're still just like, how are they going to get out of this? Because right. there's so many, there's so many things just chomping at the door. And there goes the dish again. Yeah. And, you know, this all justifies the point, which was don't fly into the maelstrom. Right. <laughs> it's like they are up against it, you know, and they're not going to survive uh, but by the skin of their teeth. So. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why this is going to go down in legend. Oh, yeah, in I his know. own mind. Oh, more than that. And, then, and then the engine goes dead. It's <laughs> so like, good. Uh, <laughs> no, it's so good. It's, it's subverts not, expectations, but it's, it's perfect. It's, it's the roller coaster where it's one more dip that you got that you didn't think. Yeah, you, know, you thought you were into the ride, and then you got one more dip. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And I love it. Yeah. So they, yeah, they call back to the the beginning of the movie when they get stuck in the shipyards yeah. with the speeder. I think it's uh, a real credit uh, to Ron Howard mm -hmm. in particular as a filmmaker that so much of this works as well as it does. I mean, and, and sometimes, I mean, you know, Ron Howard tends to get, not get credit in terms of, uh, because some of the movies that he's made, but you still watch stuff like Apollo 13. He has really great sense of how to build tension. 
Well, you know, and that's the thing. There again, there's a movie that um, as many times as I watch it, I, I'm still on edge, you know, through while the, you know, astronauts are coming out of blackout, you know, are they going right. to make it? It's like, I've read my history books. I know they make it. It's going to be yeah. fine. But you're still just on edge. And uh, the, the cut here to the lazy little, you know, um, airport tower, essentially, yeah. you know, and it just, okay, so we have the, we know what's coming, they don't, and it, uh, you know, it's a little wink at the audience, you know, and then. And the, the, how I, you know, made the Kessel run in 12, 12. parts, and he's, and Chewie says something, he's like, you know, not if you round down. And this is, a, <laughs> this is the best line in the whole movie. I hate you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the ship is so horrifically destroyed. <laughs> but seriously, that I hate you, I know was just, again, just those little things. Just those little things. And then I don't ever want to see you ever again. He followed through on that, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we assume. There, there's a lot of... And that's why, you know, the guys that, uh, well, the, the guys and girl at, uh, you know, the Resistance broadcast, um, you know, they've been doing the whole, they got the whole Make Solo 2 Happen hashtag mm -hmm. started. Uh, this is a, this is a, this is just ripe for spinoffs, Disney Plus series, another movie. It's, it, mm -hmm. you can go so many different ways with it. And if they don't, they'd be silly. Well, and, and part of it, I mean, we, we've spoken about how some instances, some people feel that um, the Mandalorian's kind of taken over that, that kind of slot. But I think it creates a dynamic because by nature of where the story is at the end of this movie, you know the Empire's still out there. You know that all the crime syndicates, Crimson Dawn's still out there. The Huts are still out there. So much of the same dynamics that, you know, the Rebellion's going to get, get started. Much of the same dynamics that color this movie are still present. And we know that Han and Chewie go on further adventures before they end up at the cantina in Mos Eisley. So the idea of, okay, we're going to put you in another one. It could be anything. And yeah. you fill it with the same amount of action and humor. You know, and in some ways, you, you almost have to be unabashed. You have to be unembarrassed by having fun with your movie. Sometimes I think people get so hung up on what a Star Wars movie has to be that they tend to just go forget to go, you know what? This is supposed to be fun. Yeah. Let's make this fun. So, you know, this one did. I hear where. Yeah. Han's, Han's trying to say that he's he's the bad guy, he's an outlaw, and Kira's like, no, you're not. I mean, because it's it's what we know. You know, we're introduced to Han Solo in A New Hope, and we think that he's, you know, a bad guy, really. Mm -hmm. um, but his heart starts to show. You know, he you know he, he can't hold it for very long. So, and they set that up here. Mm -hmm. Try as he might, he's still you know like you know still has a good heart. He is an underdog who uh, wants to run away from the fact that he wants to help other underdogs. He, he, if, if there was, if you know, if in a way you could ask a character like Han Solo what his one wish would be beyond just simply being free and whatever, it would be the ability to not have to care 
about others because it would make his life a heck of a lot easier. But he can't take that part of himself out. And it's something that we see ultimately most expressed at the climax of episode four when having the money, being able to pay off Jabba the Hutt, being able to be free of everything, he still turns around and goes back to save Luke because he can't just simply walk away. So here we get to subvert some more expectations. Mm-hmm. You get your kind of classic gunfight trope set up, um, and they don't do it. Um, ultimately. And again, yeah, and again, Han trying to BS his way out of it. And then Lando flies yeah. away. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, you go back and you see him talking in, uh, in Force Awakens, talking to uh, uh, Kanja Club, yeah, and the other gangsters, and again, he's still doing the same thing. <laughs> but you almost half expect them to just open fire on e- on each other at this point and try to blow each other up, and mm-hmm. and instead that here they are, they're they're negotiating, and um, you begin to realize that you're not necessarily dealing with. Uh, with your actual enemy here. So I, I will say that in the theater, when when Emphis Ness takes off her helmet right here, and they just hold on it, everybody's like looking at each other like, I, I was sitting there and you know we hold on her for right here in this shot. I remember turning to Brittany going, are we supposed to know who this is? Because they almost make it, they almost, they play it out like everybody's going, oh my gosh, it's her. You know, that's the way everybody's acting this. And so I thought mm-hmm. I had, like did not do the summer reading or something. I'm like, is this mm-hmm. somebody I should know who this person is? And no, it's just, we're just revealing that it's a little girl, young, young woman. So that, that this is not somebody who, you know, after building her up throughout the entire movie as this threat, this terror, this danger that she, I mean, she is all those things. I'm just saying um, that I think that it was a little bit overacted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was overacted yeah. here. So as well right, as the right. whole movie's done, it's the, like the camera and the the way that the scenes cut tries to play it off as if she's somebody we should be aware of. Yeah. When, hey, kids, it's Mark Hamill. Yeah. Right. Where the whole point is, we're not. We're not supposed to know who she is. That's part of the point. Is she's somebody yeah. who's young and not a. Oh, we're, be doing this. we're watching a movie set in outer space with aliens all over the freaking place and you know a giant talking dog and everything else and it's like and Warwick yeah, I, I'm supposed to be shocked about a young girl I'm just like what sorry Warwick Davis's character is actually walled from episode one the character he played in episode one at the pod races mm-hmm. so yep so he joined the rebellion. Anyway, we go also ahead. get a, we also get a two tubes uh, cameo here, right? I think it's actually his brother. Oh yeah, I remember if that's what they said. Sorry, not to out nerd you there, but I think <laughs> two tubes his brother. <laughs> but Fredo, were you saying anything there? Oh no, no, no! I was just saying, you know, and that's part, you know, because that's part of you know talking about. The, the, the galaxy as it is. I mean, yeah, emphasis, somebody like emphasis, and, and I love the fact that what she calls out of is not the Empire. The people who came and destroyed her planet were Crimson Dawn. 
because again, it's yeah. in in a place where there is no authority but force, where there is no right right of law but the law of the mighty or the strongest, then characters like uh, Dryden Vaughn, like and like uh, Crimson Dawn, are gonna rise and say, "Well, heck, if I'm strong enough to take what I want, I'll just take what I want." Uh, so is Han playing Beckett here? Or is it more improvisation later? You know what I mean? Because is is I mean I'm part of me is saying that he know he he doesn't fully trust Beckett. He doesn't fully trust anybody, but he's he's not as naive as he think as everybody thinks he is. But it's like, okay, he might be able to help me out here, but I should bank on the fact that he's gonna screw me over, you know. I, I, I would say, I think in part, he's trying to ascertain just where Beckett is. But he can't do it by being honest. And, and again, it goes to the idea of none of these characters are being 100% out in the open with who they are. Their yeah. world doesn't allow them to be that. Because clearly he didn't tell Beckett his entire plan. Of course not. But, yeah. then, but then he's looking to see just what they're, he wants to do. Um <laughs> What's on Tatooine? I, I think you're right, Fredo. I think if Beckett in that moment had told him, hey, you know what? I think I'm with you. Um, he would have said, okay, well, look, here's what I think we should do. Um, right. But he wasn't going to fold him into his actual plan. Right. Because, until, again, yeah, until he knew what exactly was going to happen. And, it, and this is, in some ways, hard growing up. It's and acknowledging that, yeah, you may like these people, these might be people you're fighting with and bleeding with and trying to stay alive with, but that doesn't mean that they are going to be um, on your side, ultimately. It's weird. The only character, the, the, the more you talk to a character, the less trustworthy they get. Poor Chewbacca just has to carry crap everywhere. He's the muscle. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Like he he's the muscle, but he's also like completely underestimated in other facets. You know, he's just such he's a smart guy. He's been around. He's seen a lot. And he understands things. But people are like, he's the muscle. Mm -hmm. Bought him into that role. But I, you know, I don't I don't want to read too much into it. But like honestly, this is part of the reason that he and Han get on as well as they do is that Han doesn't treat him in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, like even at just this moment, looking back at him to get his approval, like hey, you're 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 with us here, right? You know what's going on, so. Again, Dave, you were. Uh... Off, uh, off the earbuds when we were in Dryden Voss's office earlier. I just love looking around here. All the little throwbacks they put in. There's the idol from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you've got the crystal skull from some Han, a Han Solo novel from back in the day. You've got uh, Mandalorian armor. It's again just one of those things where you just got to look around the room and find everything. And here's where that, you know, he's like, are you okay? Is everyone okay? And it's like, not as if he's not going to murder you in another five minutes once, uh, he, if he feels like it. So. And what's interesting here is that 
in some ways, Beckett is not, I mean, Beckett, I'm sorry, Dryden Voss is not interested in Han and Chewbacca. He's more interested in seeing why Kira is betraying him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, you know, he, you know, he's, you know, when they walk in through the door is, you know, he's, he's affirming, oh, no, no, they, they were saying you couldn't do this, that, why are you trusting her? You know, they're showing, they're talking, he's talking about her, not them. And right now, at the moment of climax, it's no, it's not, you know, Han and Chewie. It's like he's dismissing them. It's for him, it's all about Kira because he owns Kira. That's the character he's invested into. You know, Han and Chewbacca can, they just, they can be whatever. The double cross of the double cross. Right. <laughs> It'll make you think this stuff's fake and it's not. Right. And even watching it for the first time, I I mean You're thinking it's a fake. Right. You you're well, yeah, you're get you get hornswoggled just with everybody else. So you're like in the middle, you're in the room with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just so well set up. And again, more of Amelia Clark's just facial reactions, you know, mm-hmm. because he is, you know, Han is dealing with somebody way above his, you know, experience level. But um, now I can't see this without seeing vision. Sorry, guys. He ruined yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I would totally, if you haven't seen Master and Commander in terms of historical uh, adaptation. I mean, it's a fictional novel, but uh, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe do an amazing job in that. And uh, if, if you're anybody into historical fiction, it's amazing. Uh, and you know, the ending is just perfect. Bettany might be kind of one of the unsung uh, MVPs of this, of the mm-hmm. acting in this movie, because he, he is just, um, we hadn't seen a villain quite like this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because here's, I mean, because it's interesting because most of the villains that we've seen are either, in, you know, their interest in power is more a power that can be exerted over others. It's one where, you know, like Vader wants to dominate Luke, the Emperor wants to dominate the galaxy. Dryden already has that in a way. He dominates the world around him, whether it's Kira, the other members of Crimson Dawn, whatever. He's in charge. He knows it. He's comfortable in that. So in reality, it's more along the lines of, making sure to how to keep that that that's his quest is staying on top and making sure that if anybody ever threatens that position they know that that they're gonna die now here comes like you said the double cross of the double cross of the double cross yeah (laughs) well again what's interesting is like (laughs) they know that uh they know that they've probably gotten sold out and so we have to do this. But again, here he goes back to Kara. He's, he's most upset not with Beckett or with Han and Chewie. He's upset with the person that he trusted or that he had he owns. Yeah, and like you, in the back. you said earlier, I think the one he's invested the most into, like she's a commodity. He's invested a lot of time into grooming her. 
Yeah, again, this is one of the most uncomfortable moments in a Star Wars movie. Really, just again, this uh, this abusive element right here between Dryden Voss and and Kira. That's just like, uh, it's just so oogie. But then again, you know, as you know, things kick in here. We we see her being able to take care of business on her own. So. And the coaxium is empty. Oh no, guys, we've been hosed. And <laughs> wait a minute, this is real coaxium? What? That's what everybody else in the theater is doing, going, huh? Right. Right and this is an old lady? What? And there's the other emphasis nest. What's going they're on? Getting, they're getting killed. Everybody's getting mowed down. Greedo's kicking people over. There's two tubes or four tubes, whatever it is. <laughs> And this is again. This is like when the music kicks into uh, from that earlier theme. And now it's more triumphant and heroic and angelic than whereas before it was menacing. So, Casden uh, <laughs> says whether or not you were surprised by Beckett's betrayal, it had a thematic inevitability to it. This moment was meant to rhyme with the moment in A New Hope when Han returns to save Luke during the assault on the Death Star. Mm. In both movies, the older cynical character reluctantly departs and then suddenly returns. With Beckett, it's a betrayal. With Han, it reveals his heroic nature. And what I love is the fact that, you know, Han is taken into account Beckett's personality. He knows uh, that he would look to get ahead of everybody here. And so what does he do? <laughs> he puts in a position where he can walk away with everything and then betray Dryden. And now the I mean, fight, is, fight is on between <laughs> Dryden and Han and Kira. This is all very good and bad and ugly, right? You know, yeah. like it's funny, like we didn't get a payoff of a gunfight uh, on the beach earlier between uh, Emphis Nest and, uh, and, uh, Beckett's oh, crew, right. yeah, and Han, and but here you get it, you get that, that that tension of three different parties with three different objectives, and mm -hmm. and now it's being paid off. And you know, again, his um, it's a different kind of weaponry slash fight than what we typically see with these knives. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, most of our, uh, that was something you mentioned very early in this show, Fredo, was that we're not going to have lightsabers. Right. So it's like, well, how else are we going to get those action beats? And, and here it's a lot more hand to hand, but with, with different kinds of weapons that you don't typically see in a Star Wars movie. And nobody, you can reading in everybody's faces. Nobody knows what the other is up to. I just, I just love it. You don't know what's, mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, now she's uh, taking yeah, on Dryden. But I love the fact that she says, "Look, you taught me to, you know, find an opponent's weakness, and well, I know yours. what yours is." I yeah. bet. And that's a good move. <laughs> 
and, and Han gets his gun. Hey! Oh, everything's done. Never mind. Yep. Bit, of, uh, <laughs> bit of a watch model of Kurt Russell from Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I've never noticed that before. You're absolutely right. So, um, again, from Kasdan, Kira's betrayal slash departure was also in the DNA of Solo from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. She was always intended to be more complicated and ambiguous than Han, at least at this point in their lives. This was a tricky thing to pull off as you're constantly weighing how invested you want the audience to be in the relationship with properly setting up the choice she makes at the end. Again, this was always intended to be just the first and second acts of their story. The third act, the resolution of Han and Kira has yet to be told mm -hmm. from Jonathan Kasdan. Because, yeah, because there's, I mean, it leaves off on a cliffhanger, their relationship. There's not, you know, Han knows that there's more to her by the end of this. That there's something going on between her and Crimson Dawn that he'll never, you know, learn or know the depths of. But it's also having to do with. Um, we know that when we meet again, when we meet him in the cantina, when we meet him in Episode Four, he's a different character. He's in a different place altogether, uh, relationship-wise. So, um, I, I think that's a really good point because the cameo here creates a lot of questions for people and they're like, Oh my gosh, what does that mean? And how are you going to resolve all that? Um, but where you leave Han and Kira's relationship here, uh, it's not resolved. Right. So I guess my question is this, when does this take place off in the timeline? If say, if like you're comparing it to rebels, it's before rebels, but, but how far before? You know, uh, I, I, I mean, I mean, we're you're, we're in between Clone Wars and Rebels. Okay. Uh, I was trying to go by Luke's age, right? So his Luke was seventeen-ish around A New Hope, right? Um, how how deep into the Empire are we at this point? Five five years? A bit more than uh, maybe a bit more than that, or maybe so. I mean, uh, I guess the, the reason I'm asking is because this does now. I love seeing more. Uh, this mole, how far ahead is he from the mole we meet, you know, in Twilight of the Apprentice, put it that way? It's well, a few years from it, right? Yeah, we're, we're a couple years out from that. Okay. Um, so, okay, so from Kazdan, because it, it, it was funny. First of all, I remember this scene, and I remember hearing the voice, and I was like, who is that? It's like that sounds so familiar. I was like, what? and I was like, Maul, what the heck? I mean, it, it this is where I felt if there was a jumping of the shark, it was a little bit of a jump of the shark. Um, but Kasdan says, if you felt like it was a cheap stunt, I suppose that's fair. But the truth is, Maul was built into the design of Solo in, in many subtle ways, including the name Crimson Dawn, the artifacts in Dryden's study, um, the use of Kira's use of Terrascasi. Uh, Maul is my favorite character from the prequel trilogy. I love that Dave Filoni brought him back and expanded on his story in the Clone Wars and Rebels. I love that there is at least some continuity between the shows and the movies. For me, Maul was destined to pass through Solo as the ultimate uh, Star Wars Kaiser. Mm -hmm. uh, so, anyway. And I, he says... He says that because there, there, it was rumored there were several different possibilities for that cameo, right? I think Boba Fett was one. Mm -hmm. 
Jabba was one maybe. Um, so that's, you know, that's in response to that. He, he had always pulled for Maul according to, According to him, he wanted that to be Maul from the and very I, beginning. And I get it, but it's like, you know, I the the one that would and the one that would make would have made the most sense would would have been Boba Fett. You know, I, for for Han Solo's story, as we know of Han Solo, Darth Maul has nothing to do with Han Solo. Right. You know what I mean? And I get it. We're we're talking tangentially now because it was Kira talking to, but it would have it would have been kind of the icing on the cake to have 30 seconds of Boba Fett saying, you know, you need to come, now you need to come to, you know, Dathomir. And then and everybody would be like, why is Boba Fett talking about Dathomir? Then, you know, so I think there's things you could have done. Um, and of course, we get Han shooting first here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, we don't want to gloss over that either. That's that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Because it's um, set up, I mean, Beckett's trying to monologue his way into getting him to drop his guard and Han doesn't. Yeah. He, um, I think it's telling that ultimately Han doesn't find his freedom by, uh, you know, just following. Himself. Yeah. Well, I mean, finding Emphasis Nest is his path to freedom, but he doesn't follow Emphasis Nest. Right. Um, he has to find his own path. He has to figure out who he is and live his life. And uh, for what we know of that character, um, sorry, I love Han, it. Han, Han shoots first. Right. <laughs> I mean, he shoots first. That's what we know about this. I think. I think this. All right, sorry. I think this is an awesome scene right here. Where character Kira, and finger to anybody else. What were you gonna say? Oh, I'm sorry, you froze up there. I thought you were done, so I started oh. talking. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, I thought that was just a great moment there where Kira's flying away and Han like is looking lost and Chewbacca puts his hand on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I got I got it, dude. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think one of the good things about, I mean, Chewbacca has been shown to be very observant of the world around him. So he's understanding that there's a relationship that means something to Han and to see her fly away means something important, you know, shifted in their dynamic um but no but to go to your point dave i think it's yeah it's absolutely right uh han in many ways you know just as kira is trapped by crimson dawn you know han is trapped by what he wants to be he can't he can't just simply just take the easy path the easy path is go with emphasis go fight for the you know we'll become the rebellion and be who you were supposed to be but he can't accept that of himself at this point. Uh, and I also think, regarding Maul, I just think realistically, in many ways, Maul becomes kind of like the underworld version of Darth Sidious, which I appreciate. You know, he learned from, from Darth Sidious to be the Phantom Menace, to be the guy in the shadows, the, the hidden hand moving stuff. Uh, and so that gives him, you know, that's what uh, Maul has been doing with Crimson Dawn and the other crime syndicates. He's the he's the hidden player behind them all at the end. So uh, I mentioned it before on the podcast. At the end of in the book, apparently at the right at this point, we have an interaction between Emphis Nest and Saw Gerrera and a young Jin Urso. Mm -hmm. 
that would have been you, you could have you could have had you know Forrest Whitaker and just have a little girl and everybody would well, the, the, the little girl who play, who acted who acted the role of your prior. I mean, good, yeah. yeah. And now this this final card game here. I, we talked about epilogues. You know, do you do you, mm -hmm. you know, was, was the epilogue? You know what you wanted. This is basically an epilogue, and it's yeah. like because they could have ended with Han and Chewie walking away, you know, but. This is a great epilogue. Right. Because, I mean, you have to leave. They have to be the two of them in the Falcon. That has to, you know, that has to be the way this movie ends. Because that's kind of, you know, God's in his heaven, the devil's in his hell, all's right with the world. You know, Han and Chewie's place is the Falcon. So to have ended the movie in anything else would have been this felt short. I love this moment right here when, when Han shows his cards to... Uh, Chewbacca and Chewbacca's like, uh, no, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> right here, he goes. <laughs> yeah. And the look like of Lando's giving him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the the scene's probably not necessary, and. The sense that you, you could, you did, I don't know if this movie needed to have them fly away in the Falcon together, but um, it, I, you know, it's playing to the fans, and sometimes that can be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. well, it is an epilogue. It's not part of the main story. It's just if they weren't going to have a if if there wasn't plans for a sequel, then they had to be in the Falcon, you know, because otherwise right. that would have been. That just would have been dirty pool, you know. Yeah, could you imagine them on something like like put it this way? Would you imagine if 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 it would have ended this movie with Han and Chewie on the ghost? Yeah, <laughs> that would have felt weird. If they weren't on the Falcon by the end of this thing, though, it really would have set up the sequel like like so well. Like, oh gosh, how are they going to get the Falcon now? I need to watch Solo Two. Make Solo Two happen. Yep, make yeah. make solo two happen. Include that hashtag um, in our when we tweet this out. So, so there we go. Now we're flying off into hyperspace, and there's the dice um, that yeah apparently are so important. So um, no, you know, again, this was not the Star Wars movie that I wanted, but it was so much the Star Wars movie I think I needed. You know, um, to paraphrase, you know, some things there. It's it was like I said, it was just fun. Um, because it, it comes, it comes at a moment after we've gotten Force Awakens, which had that really, you know, hard-hitting ending when Han dies, yeah. killed by his own kid. Followed by Rogue One, which is, you know has that hard-hitting ending where everybody dies. Yeah, Rogue One, everybody dies. Yeah. <laughs> so to have a movie, a Star Wars movie, Last Jedi, and the Last Jedi where Luke dies, it's like, okay, can we get a Star Wars story where you know the good guys kind of make it out all right? But, uh, but yeah, so no, it was, like I said, I think is, it, it, and every time I watch it, I enjoy it more. So um, it's, I, I, and I do hope that there is some sort of sequel at some point. So mm -hmm. um, any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Everybody's been watching the movie with us. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, I just, um, I love, 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 the the deeper 
thoughts and themes that go into a, a, a movie like this because it's like if you think about it when they decided we got to make a han solo movie it's like well okay again a lot of people were like well i didn't ask for that what's the point what's the point of a han solo movie well the point of a han solo movie is to talk about these ideas of rebellion and again can you get any more Star Wars than that? I, that's what it has always been about. It's always been about rebellion, mm -hmm. um, and and that character has been always has always been about rebellion. The ultimate bad boy, you know, walking his own way, um, not necessarily doing what the what the good guys want him to do. Um, the movie about him had to go down this direction. I I feel and. And I'm so glad that it did. Um, they could have taken this in 50 different directions. Like you said, Aaron, it could have been slapsticky. It could have been silly. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to do those things. You can still make a fun movie, um, a Star Wars type of movie, um, and address some of these deeper themes at the same time. So I... I'll always be very thankful for the movie, the final product that we got here. I have no idea what we would have gotten if they hadn't have changed directors and hadn't have made some of the changes that they did. Um, but I'm really, really pleased with what we ended up with. It's a yeah. great movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll concur with everything you said. Uh, some, sometimes I think we get too caught up in, in some of the stories we think we want to see told that we don't leave room for stuff to come around and surprise us and when everybody said well i don't need to know where Han solo came from i know where Han solo came from it's like yeah in some ways there is something to the mystique of you just met him at the cantina and most nicely but getting this story i mean getting to see these moments getting to spend time with these characters it's a fun and enjoyable experience and you should never turn your, you know, turn your nose up at that opportunity because, you know, again, so many of the movies get caught up in the bigger themes, and this movie does have those themes, but yeah. it does it in a way in which they're never front, you know, they're never in your face unless you're looking for them, and then we start looking for them. You see them all laid out, uh, laid out for you to to acknowledge, but uh, you know, given given an opportunity to something that you didn't think oh you'd like. And then you give try and go. Wow, it's it's fun, and I'm enjoying this, and I want to see more of this. You know, I hope that more people are willing to do that, particularly for, you know, properties like Star Wars, where we think we're so we're so adamant that we know exactly what it is that we want to see. Give me more of this. Don't give me that. And it, and it's surprising when stuff comes out and you go like, oh wow, this was not what I wanted, but it's good. So. So. Uh... Let us know what you think about Solo, and you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook and, you know, each of our individual uh, Twitter accounts or on the Who Dat Jedi podcast Twitter account. Um, and as always, you can get us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, but uh, let us know what you think about the Solo movie, and you can talk to us at any time about anything Star Wars um, or Saints. Um, we got a bye week, so... Um, so that's good. We need some rest and people quit fighting and things like that. So, uh, uh, but we will still give a hearty hoodat. 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 And uh, you guys have a great week. We will see you next time.
Macanque.